Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis. And today, I'm really excited because this topic touches my heart in a, in a very, very profound way. I love the doctor-patient relationship. And when I was a third-year medical student, I remember the, the mentors and the instructors had, we were rotating on the OBGYN uh, clerkship, and they said, who wants to do an infertility rotation for one week? And I just raised my hand. I didn't know much about it. And when I spent the week with patients and the reproductive endocrinology physicians and just seeing the emotional <clears throat> impact that the disease had on patients, the connection that the patients had with the doctor, the, the intimacy of this problem and the physical, emotional, and financial investment that patients were making, it, it changed my life. That one week of th third year medical school made me committed to going into reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And the impact that this has on your lives has really been shown to be analogous to the impact that cancer can have. It's the psycholo same psychological trauma. So when you go to a fertility practice, it's really our responsibility to reduce your stress as much as possible, to allay your anxiety, and give you the comfort, support, encouragement, and, and hope that, that you need with realistic expectations. So the doctor-patient relationship, or having a productive doctor-patient relationship, is the topic for today. And joining me is, is an outstanding uh, professor of law at the University of Mauer School of Law. Her name is Dr. Jody Madeira, and she had actually underwent IVF in 2007 and conceived, are you ready, triplets. I would love to know how many embryos they transferred uh, back in 2007. But uh, Jody's research addresses the intersection of law, society, and emotion in family law, criminal law, law and medicine, and even the Second Amendment. She wanted to investigate way back when, when she got involved in the IVF process personally, investigate how emotions impacted fertility treatment, decision-making, and the doctor-patient relationship. And what she found is that patients regarded the desperation of infertility as a motivating force that, that spurred them to action, like research and, and thoughtfully choosing a clinic, not a source of paralysis. So patients are obviously overwhelmed in this process, but reading and understanding their informed consent forms they didn't like as much as the interaction with the patient in understanding that informed consent. So let's talk about the productive doctor-patient relationship and bring on Dr. Jody Madeira. Jody, thank you so much for joining us on the, on the podcast today. Thank you so very much for having me. You know, uh, uh, anecdotally, I just want to mention that my first embryo transfer way back in 1996 it was a young woman, and we were transferring back then four embryos. And I remember transferring the embryo catheter. It was my first one. I was really, really anxious. 
And I, got, I took the catheter back. The embryologist, after I transferred, the embryologist looked at the catheter and said, one embryo retained. And I was devastated. I started sweating. I said, oh my God, I ruined this woman's transfer. So my, my, my colleague was there. He says, don't worry, calm down. We're going to do the transfer again. We get it back in, put the catheter in, took it out. The same embryo was remaining. I said, oh my God, I ruined everything. Finally, she prepared the catheter. I put it back inside, got it in. Patient um, uh, did fine, went home. I went home. It was a Friday afternoon. I was sick the whole weekend, feeling like I ruined this patient's chance, and she ends up with triplets. Uh, so, so, uh, and I think it was three boys like you have. So uh, interesting. So tell me, tell me, Jody, uh, what what got you involved and uh, in, in the doctor-patient relationship, um, and what do you feel is a productive doctor-patient relationship? Uh, so what got me started on the doctor-patient relationship is that um, you know in 2011, after going through fertility, um, I was teaching this in my classes, and I began reading uh, law review articles, which is, you know, what most, uh, I, I would say, law classes are based on, um, and I got to reading some stuff that didn't make me happy, and I didn't think it matched, you know, what I had gone through in treatment, and basically, the law review articles kind of matched some stereotypes in popular culture, and they said, you know, women are desperate, and couples are desperate, and, you know, doctors are just out there to take advantage of them, and I said, uh, I'm not sure about that. You know, it's not based on empirical evidence. It's There's no studies behind this. Um, let's go out and investigate what doctor-patient relationships are like, um, how they impact treatment decision-making, and, you know, how emotions become part of both a doctor relationship and treatment decision-making. And so, um, you know, I think I had a great relationship with my doctor. Um, what I found, actually, was not that different than what I experienced. Um, a great doctor-patient relationship is one in which there's a partnership, you know, one where the patient comes in trusting the doctor, ready to listen. The doctor comes in ready to, you know, hear the patient's concerns and work with them and for them. Um, one where there is a lot of open communication um, and a dialogue, and I think, you know, that's, that's the beginning of a great doctor-patient relationship. I, I agree 100%. I, I have trouble understanding, though, how a patient can, how you can actually study exploitation. When, when we talked about, you didn't see that in anything substantiated in terms of uh, doctors ordering unnecessary tests and, and so on. But, you know, I have found, unfortunately, firsthand in reviewing patients' records is that there are a lot of unnecessary tests being done. And sometimes there is a conflict of interest of physicians ordering things that don't seem to be necessary. And so, there's a slippery slope there because you're saying that the patients are may really enjoy the relationship with their physician, but how is a patient truly going to know? You know, they are they are desperate and not and I don't mean to connote that in a, in a, in a negative way, but how would they not be? They're, they're, they've gone through uh, at least a year of trying on their own, then they go see their OBGYN, and then they end up with a reproductive endocrinologist, which they're very intimidated by because they think this is their last chance, and then they get to the point of getting tests ordered. And I have yet to find a patient say, I don't want that test. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're, they're going to, they, they just have such a risk of exploitation. So I, I agree with you 100% that we need to have a solid relationship and it is a partnership. And I think that patients 
should be their own advocate. They have to ask, you know, tell me what this test is going to be doing. What are you seeing as the, as the outcome, um, uh, the percentages of patients that will find success from this, and also cost, and is my insurance going to cover it, and so on and so forth. So I, I'm with you all the way. I, I just feel that we have to be uh, hypervigilant, or the patient has to be hypervigilant in, in what's, what's being ordered. Because the outcome doesn't always justify the means, right? I mean, yes, everybody loves to have a baby, but you know, if a patient is, is spending, gosh, an inordinate amount of money with unnecessary tests, yes, she's overjoyed that she got successful, but it doesn't really justify the path may not have been the, best, the, the most optimal. Right, and I think when you're looking, you know, at what, at what point, how can you tell that there is exploitation? Um, I think the patients that are most likely to sense exploitation are those that have been exploited in the past. And this can happen, you know, even before they walk into the reproductive endocrinologist's office. I think there is a lot of people who are held far too long at the gynecologist's office. You know, they go to their OBGYN and they go for testing. And the um, I, I know in my case this happens. They'll say, oh, just relax. You'll get pregnant. You know, um, we can try this and then we can try that and we can try this again. And, you know, it's very frustrating. And so um, one of the things I heard when I was interviewing um, physicians and patients for my research are that, you know, the, the OBGYNs just hold on far too long. Um, so that's, you know, going to make a patient really focus, like, on is the doctor acting in my best interest. And unfortunately, sometimes by the time they get to the reproductive endocrinologist, you know, a patient might be quite defensive and even readier to get started um, than they might have been otherwise. Um, or exhausted. Exhausted, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Study. Uh, yeah. Exciting. Um, to get there and you know you're here you've arrived and um, you know I think once you're there you know exploitation can show up in the doctor that just wants to take the money and you know doesn't explain what they're doing that's different than another doctor would do or what they're doing different than the last cycle that didn't work out yeah you know it, there is evidence to support that the longer an OBGYN keeps a patient the less likely that patient when she goes to a, a reproductive endocrinology specialist and fertility specialist She's not going to go back to that OBGYN. And the second is that the faster they get referred to the reproductive endocrine infertility specialist, the, the faster they get pregnant. But the, um, um, it, it's just something that they have to uh, sometimes push their OBGYN or just bypass that directly. But I think if you're not prepared to, I'm talking about the clinic now, the medical clinic, if you're not prepared to take on a problem 100%, you shouldn't really open up that Pandora's box and and take on the patient. In other words, I don't, I don't take care of chronic pelvic pain patients. I, I don't specialize in that area. It, it, it requires, I think, in, intensive uh, knowledge and understanding and um, um, resources to be able to accommodate that as cancer patients and, and so on and so forth. So I think that if you're going to take on the fertility population, you have to be prepared, prepared to do that in a very efficient, proactive, supportive manner. Otherwise, Refer immediately. Yeah. I, I love the fact that you talked about that uh, patients, you found that patients regarded desperation. Uh, it, it didn't paralyze them. It was a motivating force to make them act in a more proactive uh, manner. What, what did you think when you saw that? I was not surprised because when I talked to other patients, you know, um, this popular cultural stereotype of the helpless patient, 
um, didn't really seem to, to make sense. I mean, so we all feel helpless, like, at certain moments when we find out about the diagnosis, when we find out that we're unexplained infertility, perhaps, that there's no easy answers, when we find out that we um, aren't pregnant, for example. Those are all moments where we can really grapple and with ourselves and say, what are we doing here? But then it's kind of like you pick yourself up eventually and you move on. And I think, you know, that that empowerment that comes from the desire for a child, you know, um, actually is what motivates patients to research physicians, to look at the CDC statistics, um, to keep on going. You know, the number one reason why I think a patient isn't going to get pregnant is because they leave treatments before they otherwise would, right? Um, and so that's something to which all patients are susceptible. And, you know, you really have to have um, something that keeps you going. Uh, a supportive partner is, is, is a very important thing, but also I think you just come back to that doctor-patient relationship and you know that your treatment team is working for you and with you. You know, I often um, share with patients that an option, though, when you said that they may not conceive if they stop doing patients, or at least that sometimes they don't if they, if they, if they discontinue prematurely, you know, if it's unexplained, up to 60% has been shown to, uh, will get pregnant naturally within three to five years. So, you know, sometimes they do need a break, but, but I, I do uh, label their journey as their project. This is, this is their time, and they're going to be doing project management over this year uh, and, and to commit to it. No, I, I, I agree, but it is, is very, very difficult. Uh, you mentioned about fertility patients. Do you think or do you have any uh, evidence that fertility patients are the most uh, savvy, as it were, in terms of research online? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, from the patients I spoke with, so um, let me just talk about my research a little bit. So I interviewed 130 male and female patients. I had another 267 patients that I had um, fill out online surveys, and I had 83 interviews with reproductive medicine professionals such as nurses, um, REs themselves, and embryologists. And, you know, um, all of the patients I interviewed pretty much said that they had looked online. Um, and they, you know, a lot of them just found out that, you know, through better or worse means that information was of varying quality, you know. So sometimes they got to uh, their doctors and they found out that, you know, Standing upside uh, down on your head and drinking pineapple juice wasn't really the way to get pregnant, you know, and I'm kind of exaggerating here, but, um, you know, I think you learn through trial and error that um, some information is good and some information is bad and that information is really there to get you started um, online and that the ultimate source of information you can get, you can trust is most often your physician. So, so you talked about informed consent, uh, which which is a touchstone for, for uh, our, uh, my practice, of course, and, and, and all good, good IVF centers and, uh, and infertility clinics. You mentioned about that patients wanted the face-to-face -face as opposed to reading, and I, I get that. But there are now interactive video consents that really can explain the process as equal, if not better, than, than a physician and or a nurse would do with graphics and um, sometimes questions, interaction, things like that. Did you have any experience in that, or what do you think of that concept of, of using online interactive video consents to uh, explain a, a procedure to a patient? 
That's a really excellent question. And I think, too, you know, you got to look at informed consent in IVF um, and in other procedures. It's so unique because, you know, usually you just get, like, a general consent form. You know, this might be a page, a page, or two pages long. And it might not actually even be tailored to any particular procedure. Um, but for IVF, you know, you can kind of get a binder of information that's both educational and has forms that you sign. You have to make decisions that are so totally different, like what to do with embryos if you or your partner should die or get divorced um, and you, you know, have um, embryos frozen and uh, that have not been used. Um, so there's a very, it's a very unique treatment context. And two, how you carry out the instructions that you, you know, for procedures that you have to do at home, like medication, all depends on how well you understand that information. Um, and I think that there's, at bottom, informed consent is a relationship between the doctor and, you know, the patient and the treatment team. And at bottom, you know, there always has to be this basis of open communication. But oftentimes, you know, your appointment with the provider is 15 minutes and, you might not have the form uh, that you need or the form might not answer the question. And so I think that when it comes to multimedia informed consent, you know, where you can watch videos, the videos walk you through almost every aspect of the, um, of the uh, IVF or IUI process, that's something that's really incredible um, to have. And, and if you watch it before, you know, you go to your doctor to sign the forms, that it even might actually give you questions that you didn't know you had. Um, but I think if you start having watched the videos and um, knowing that basis of information, you can just start off at a much different place than you can if you go in just starting from square one. Yeah, it's like reading the chapter before the class. Exactly. And, and, and I think that's almost like what it is because um, many women and men are going to know what IVF entails generally. But I've talked to women who said, I didn't know anything about, you know, implant, uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, or I didn't know anything about, you know, ICSI, uh, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. I didn't know anything about um, embryo disposition. And I think if you, you know, hear about those, there's the, the initial shock of, oh, my gosh, what is that? And, oh, do I look stupid in front of my doctor? And well, what do we want to do? You know, so I think... Um, the more you come in knowing for that appointment, um, the better informed and the better decisions and the better conversations you can have. Yeah, uh, excellent points, Jody. Uh, in our remaining moments, what would you have done differently in your fertility journey or, or and or what would you have liked the fertility clinic have done differently to, uh, to, to give you a better experience? Well, you know, going back to that multimedia-informed consent, I think um, I think it has the ability to make us think about things differently than just reading a form. And so, of course, um, so I'll, I'll just tell a bit about um, our own triplet journey. So we transferred three embryos, and I remember, you know, you only have like half, um, it seems like 30 seconds to decide how many embryos you want to transfer back. Um, we had five embryos that fertilized. We did a day three transfer. And um, so we had three embryos that were really looking good. Uh, they were good quality, little fragmentation. And uh, the question was whether we transferred two or three. And so um, I said, well, we were, we were originally going to transfer two. And the embryologist said, but this third embryo, I think, will be happier inside you than outside you. 
And I think something just hit me oddly about that phrasing. And I said, you know, you're right. Let's just go ahead with three. Um, what are the odds of triplets? And the embryologist said, well, about 3%. You know, um, and so at that point, I looked at it as a statistical matter, you know, and I didn't look upon it as a story. Um, and so what might have made me think differently is, you know, hearing about someone who went through a triplet pregnancy and encountered a lot of the issues that I ended up encountering, um, like preterm labor, like bed rest. Um, and so, you know, and I had other friends who encountered those same stories, and unfortunately they, they lost babies um, in the process, and it was heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm, I'm... Where it's not in the provider's control. Um, but, and I think my provider was incredibly supportive throughout the process and never stopped being supportive. Um, but I think, too, it's really hard to weigh those risks differently after, you know, before you go through them, before you even think you could get pregnant, yeah. right? Yeah, I don't think the, yeah, I think the transfer, the number of embryos to transfer needs to be discussed in advance than, than on the day when, you know, all that excitement, energy, and emotion is coming through. But. This was just uh, very, very informative, uh, Jody. I thank you so much for the generous time that you took to, to spend with, uh, with me and my audience today. Uh, everyone, thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. Uh, if there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.